What are the technologies you need to power a wind turbine, an electric car? How about an entire city? Everything I just mentioned requires countless integrated digital components, chargers, software, even robots. Yes, robots. And the company at the forefront of these technologies is ABB, the global tech company that's helping industrial sectors become more reliable, more efficient, less carbon intensive. How are they doing that? And what does the future look like for a tech company that is helping to actually create the future? Welcome to The Bid, where we break down what's happening in the markets and explore the forces changing investing. I'm your host, Mark Weedman. On this mini-series, we're meeting with CEOs from around the world who are accelerating the transition. We're asking, why are you doing it? How? And how are you going to make money while serving all your stakeholders? We're exploring these questions in our mini-series, The Real Leaders of Net Zero. Joining me on the second episode is Peter Vozer, chairman of ABB. ABB is a major industrial tech company based in Switzerland. They have a market cap of $77 billion, over 100,000 employees, worldwide operations in 86 countries. They're huge. And they have their hands in everything, electrification, automation, robotics, and smart motion. What does the transition mean for ABB and for ABB's customers? Peter, thanks very much for joining us from Zurich. Thanks for inviting me to this discussion. I really look forward to it. Peter, let's start with the basics of ABB. What do you do? ABB is really a technology-driven company with a very strong purpose. And what we really do is we are driving technology together with customers and societies to develop new business models, to develop really sustainable business propositions, but also increase performance. We do this really in two areas. One is electrification. The other one is automation, including robotics. And with both of them, we are actually in the middle of the very big trends of the world. One is climate change. That's where electrification comes in. And the other one is really demographic issues across the world. We want to get supply chains to move from being efficient only to also being resilient. And that's where automation comes in. It increases productivity. It allows you to invest in various manufacturing places instead of only one. So connect electrification and automation to decarbonization, if you can. Why are those related concepts? Let's use electrification as an example. So we are in private homes, we are in commercial homes, we are in transport, being it passenger cars, being it trains, being it buses or also lorries. That's where we bring electrification products in, in order to optimize energy consumption. This is about energy consumption, generating a safer environment for the workers as well, but at the same time also driving mobility, for example, into new areas. On the other side, on automation, it's kind of the same. If you automate a full factory, is using machines only, you're also optimizing energy consumption, but you also can produce more 
at the same or lower costs. And that again helps to drive actually sustainability. So we are consuming less natural resources or we're consuming less of the world. We help our workers actually have a safer environment because the more let's say, dangerous work is now performed by robots rather than by humans. But in the high-quality work, we have robots and humans working together in order that they can actually also still have their jobs, which do actually need their skills. You and your firm touch many, many sectors as customers of your products, all the electrical and automation tools you give to your clients. Which sectors do you see as having the most rapid change in the next five to 10 years? I think here one has to mention the automotive sector. Very clearly, with the big shift in electromobility, and I concentrate now on passenger cars, the way they have responded to develop new cars, I think this change has come much faster than anticipated. Yes, it was pioneered by one company in the U.S., but now what I call the big boys have caught up with this one and are developing. Now, this gives us quite significant challenges in other parts of the industry. For example, we need to have a charging infrastructure. We need to have a reliable network of power, which is not there yet today. Peter, you mentioned the role of one attacker that helped to change the whole industry and how the incumbents have completely reinvented themselves or are reinventing themselves. How do you see that dynamic playing out across all the sectors that you work with? So whether it's everything from hydrocarbons to cars, how are you seeing the role of incumbents and attackers? I see this as a very healthy development because I think we need these breakthroughs in terms of technology because I have a very firm belief that disruption in technology will actually set the scene for the incumbents then to jump onto that as well. And given their domain expertise they normally have, they can actually accelerate the change even further. So the attacker has a key role to play in simple terms to wake up the incumbents to actually start to move forward and don't rest on what they have been doing for 30 or 50 years, but actually develop something new. And I think the electric car is an excellent example. It is no longer about the combustion engine and the fine tuning of that, getting more horsepowers in, etc. Now, it's all about software. Hence, you have ripple-on effects into many other industries, even including e-commerce, other software providers, other convenience providers. And I think we will see a lot of that happening over the next 5, 10, 15 years. And it has all been actually triggered by a disruptor or an attacker, as you say. Disruptors, attackers. Interestingly, actually, the right word is innovators who are serving client needs in a new way. What do you see as the sectors with the most interesting innovations of the next 5 to 10 years, if you have to guess? I think around the e-mobility, we have only scratched the surface. I think this will be further developed. It's all based on electrification, but you will clearly see hydrogen coming in. You will have most probably different technologies over time coming in, which we don't know yet today because the innovators will drive this. So I think that will be a second one all around mobility. And it's not just the innovation type, but it's also 
the behavior of consumers, which will drive this innovation quite clearly over the years and decades to come. And I would mention chemicals, because if you really want to have a society where fossil fuels will play a much smaller role, whilst it will still play a role for many decades, many materials which we have today coming out of chemicals, they are still fossil fuel based. And we do not have solutions for that if we don't want to do that fossil fuel based. And hence, I think in material science, material development, there will be huge kind of gigantic steps needed over the decades to come. Why do innovators drive the transformation of industries as opposed to incumbents? I think if you are an incumbent, you normally have a size. If you have a size, you're complex and you're process driven. Many times, what I call the out of the box R&D gets actually killed by going through very complex processes and stage gate analysis. And it takes years to actually get something new into the market. An innovator, which is kind of a startup plus, they move much faster. They bring the right scientific knowledge together. They bring the right kind of brains together, not just on the subject itself, but also the way they want to go to market, etc. And I think they're just faster. They are less risk averse. Any big corporate starts to become over time more risk averse. And the younger companies, many times younger entrepreneurs, they just accept more risks and may run with 60% clarity, whilst the corporate runs with 95% clarity. And I think that's a big difference. When one core part of the economy changes, it alters multiple businesses around it. How does that connect to the alliances that you've been striking across industries to help drive decarbonization? It is no longer possible that one company can really deliver the big change. So the ecosystem approach, which does not only include corporates and startups and academia, it needs to include governments as well, because policy setting and legal frameworks are extremely important so that we can drive this. So I think to deliver the long-term values to our society, to have a more sustainable world, there is no way around that we need to break down some barriers, get out of our silo thinking, and actually collaborate and work as industries together. And I see great, great progress on this one, because whenever we talk to companies or customers or even suppliers, there is no longer a need to convince them to actually work together to get a better outcome, a win-win solution, if we work as an ecosystem together. And I see this in ABB, but I also see this in the other boards I'm in. I think isolating yourself from the trends is a dangerous game. Let's talk oil and gas. You built your career in oil and gas. You ran Shell. What have you learned about the transition to a low-carbon economy that helps us understand where oil and gas is going? I think what I learned over the 30 years I worked for Shell and the last uh, years as CEO is that the transition is not a question of one or two or three years. A transition needs decades. At Shell, what I learned is actually 
that the switch from oil to more gas because of CO2 thinking started actually 20 years ago. So you need that time to develop technology, to develop the markets, to convince your ecosystem, you convince the governments. So that's the clear thing I have learned. It takes time to change, in this case, the energy system, which is a complex piece across the world. To change that, you need to be pursuing in a persistent way over most probably one or two decades in order to get to the stage where we are today. I take an example, not out of oil and gas, out of the wind industry. A wind turbine, when it came to the market in the early 80s, compared to the wind turbine today, the one today is a hundred times more efficient and is actually bigger from a capacity point of view. So therefore, it needs time to develop technology. Now, there is a but. What I also learned the last five to ten years is actually that the technology change is accelerating at a tremendous speed. And that was maybe not the case 20, 30 years ago. But I think the new technologies in terms of software, we talked about artificial intelligence, about data, quantum computing, high-performance computing, has clearly changed the speed of the evolution of innovations. And I think that is for me a big surprise because I didn't have that in my playbook, not at Shell, but also I think I learned it in ABB now that this is much more and much faster. The companies need to adjust to that. Let's say we meet again in 20 years and we look at the use of gas in Northern Europe or Europe for electrical generation and for heating homes. What do we see? Is it gone? Are we still using it? Are we capturing carbon? I think, let me start with a general statement. I'm quite disturbed by the fact that we are now kind of putting the fossil fuels into one corner. I think fossil fuels will actually be with us for quite a while because the change, as I said before, will not happen as fast as we think at the moment. So the fossil fuel companies or the fossil industry companies are actually not the problem. They are part of the solution. And that's how I would approach the gas question. And I think Europe has made a big step just before the end of the year by actually declaring gas as a green fuel. Because you can actually take gas as a green fuel if you optimize, including carbon capture sequestration, the gas side. Renewables will need a partner in terms of power generation over the next few decades because we are not there that we can cover 100%. Now you can take oil, you can take nuclear, you can take gas, you can take coal. Now let's leave nuclear aside, which has its own dimensions, but nuclear will form part of it. But the other ideal candidate is gas because A, gas has a much lower CO2 footprint. You can sequester it. But also, the gas power plants, you can actually switch on and off. With a nuclear plant, you can't do that. But if you have enough renewable capacity, you may not need the gas power plants. But you want to have it once it is needed, when the high demand comes in, 
or when the winter time is cold and you don't have wind or solar. So I think some rational thinking has to come back into the framework setting and the policies by governments. So instead of prescribing the technologies and the elements to be used, they should actually formulate the objective and leave it actually to the businesses and the industries to develop the mix, the mosaic of solutions for power generation, for e-mobility going forward. And I think that's where gas has a big role to play the next 20, 30 years. Is it still there by 2070 or 80 for electrification? I doubt it because by then I think technology has evolved. Renewables is at full scale. Hydrogen most probably will be part of it and hence it will be no longer there. But for the next 20, 30 years, there is, in my opinion, no way around it. The role of capital, of finance, in supporting decarbonization. Where do you see capital playing a constructive role? And what do you think needs to change or perhaps a new perspective taken? I think capital is, in my opinion, extremely important. And it's kind of two phases. The absolute immediate phase is actually using today's technology which is available. We talked about charging infrastructure. We talked about electric motors who have a big energy saving element. We talked about infrastructure in general, modern commercial buildings, fully equipped, etc. I think that's where we need capital to actually make the first big step in our decarbonization efforts in the world. And I think companies will need Capital and will also need investor kind of buy-in, including the buy-in that their sustainability agenda and the targets they are setting themselves to reach certain goals. I find it absolutely mind-boggling that investors are now trying to get out of fossil investment strategies or investments because, as I said, they're part of the solutions and not actually part of the problem. And I think, yes, let them be accountable for delivering a sustainability agenda, the decarbonization agenda, but give them the capital to actually develop that, but also develop fossil resources. Because let's face it, if we starve them of capital, there will be less investments. That means prices of fossils will go up. Now that will have a direct impact on delivering the renewable side and some other new technologies and on what investors should do. I think there's a huge need to invest in innovation, future technologies, because whilst the big incumbent companies can improve current technologies because they have the domain knowledge and optimize them, further increase capacity, bring costs down, we also need an engine to actually develop new technologies on the mobility side, more efficient batteries. And I think that's where investors can contribute by investing in early stage, mid-stage, late stage, whatever the stage is, in terms of technological development of alternative energy and alternative automation technologies for the future. Electrification, automation, decarbonization. That leads to a lot of change in jobs. What's the responsibility of a private sector company in working with employees as those jobs change? I think it's significant 
the responsibility and the accountability. We should all work collaboratively and also in an ecosystem. And when technology makes actually jobs no longer necessary, I think it is for the ecosystem of companies an absolute must to contribute to the reskilling of the employees, irrespective if they are 30, 40, 50, or even 60 years old. The ecosystem approach is very important because the reskilling may not result that the same person comes back to you in your company, but they may have a job in the ecosystem, in the value chain, because others may actually be very, very of a need to have those newly acquired skills mixed with the old skills in their company. So I think this is really something where the companies need to work together, but we also need the government because we have to redefine, let's say, the curriculum, the education system. I know you will gain share price improvement if you announce tomorrow that you lay off 10,000 people because you're restructuring. But I think in the future, I hope you make a few percentage in your share price if you announce that you're going to reskill a few thousand people and you will take care of their future. Peter, last question. What do you think is the single most important thing that needs to happen to get the world to net zero? It's something which the world hasn't actually achieved that much in the past. And you need actually a global alignment on how to get there. And we have seen all the cops with 10,000s of people trying to find that. I'm very skeptical that you will find any solution with 10,000 people plus trying to sort that out. I think we need a global alignment between companies, the academia, government and society on how to drive this forward and achieve the objective. I know this is very difficult because national thinking comes into it. National boundaries play a role again. Competitive behavior comes into it. But I'm afraid we will not achieve the results which we want to achieve for future generations if we don't get in some shape or form a global alignment on how to reach the endpoint of decarbonizing the world in the right way. Peter, thank you very much for joining us. Mark, thank you very much for having me. This information is for informational purposes only and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecasts made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. The information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. BlackRock does and may seek to do business with companies covered in this podcast. As a result, listeners should be aware that the firm may have a conflict of interest that could affect the objectivity of this podcast. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. 
In the UK and non-European economic area, EEA, countries, this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management, UK Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N, 2DL. Telephone, plus 44-020-7743-3000. Registered in England and Wales, number 02020394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. Please refer to the Financial Conduct Authority website for a list of authorized activities conducted by BlackRock. In the European Economic Area, EEA, this is issued by BlackRock Netherlands BV, is authorized and regulated by the Netherlands Authority for the Financial Markets. Registered Office, Amstelplein 1, 1096 HA, Amsterdam. Telephone, 020-549-5200. Telephone, 3120-549-5200. Trade Register Number, 1706-8311. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. For investors in Switzerland, this is marketing material. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited. Company registration number 20001014 n This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited ABN 130061659750 AFSL 230523BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. Before making any investment decision, you should assess whether the material is appropriate for you and obtain financial advice tailored to you having regard to your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, and circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund, nor shall any shares be offered or sold to anyone in any jurisdiction in which an offer, solicitation, purchase, or sale would be unlawful under the securities law of that jurisdiction. If any funds are mentioned or inferred to in this material, it is possible that some or all of the funds may not have been registered with the securities regulator of Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Mexico, Panama, Peru, Uruguay, or any other securities regulator in any Latin American country, and thus may not be publicly offered within any such country. The securities regulators of such countries have not confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the investment services guide available at www.blackrock.com forward slash MX. Copyright 2021, BlackRock Incorporated. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Incorporated. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.